Our scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel according to Matthew in chapter 24 and reading verses 36 to 42. So I invite your uh, reverent attention to the public reading of God's Word here in the 24th chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Thanks be to God for His Word. When I was in the Army, I used to uh, command a unit that had as its uh, motto written upon its crest uh, two simple words, uh, make ready. Synopsis, uh, brief uh, form, uh, is our charge to help units uh, train collectively uh, to get ready should the war toxin ever sound. Because if you're not ready to fight, then, of course, uh, you're in a very bad way. But there is one event that uh, is similar to combat and the call to make ready in preparation that is yet before all of us, and that is the coming of Christ. Uh, It is uh, the coming of God that is so swift that there is uh, no time to get ready if you are not already ready. Uh, part of our uh, disciples' questions uh, to our Savior in the Olivet Discourse in the third verse of the 24th chapter is, uh, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? As you know, our Savior does not answer that question. Uh, the implication is, is that it will be sudden and unexpected. And that is, therefore, we must always be ready for the coming of of God. And so Jesus says, but of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. Uh, the, The statement that even the Son does not know is a remarkable reminder of the humanity of our Savior, uh, illustrating that He is, of course, one person with two distinct natures. Might seem somewhat obvious, but of course, uh, church has always struggled over that. That's a clear statement here. Uh, The other implication of our Lord's uh, answer is that it's not necessary to know, obviating excessive curiosity and predictions. Uh, What we need to know, of course, is uh, that we can trust God for our times are in His hands. Psalm 31. 
Another great reminder from the psalmist, uh, a man uh, who is struggling uh, with the question of evil in the world, the 37th Psalm. If you have your Old Testament, I trust you do. I encourage you to turn there. Psalm uh, 37, the 34th verse. Wait for the Lord and keep His way. In the inter-Advent period, that's uh, one of the things that we are called to do, to wait for the Lord. It's also a very difficult thing to do. One of the hardest challenges for men every age is to wait. We are called to wait for the Lord and to keep His way. Notice to follow along, and He will exalt you to inherit the land when the wicked are cut off. You will see it. It's our reminder that we're to be prepared and ready, be kept in the way of God, wait for the Lord until He comes. But in this text, Jesus gives to us two illustrations of the suddenness and total unexpectedness of his coming, establishing, therefore, the necessity of continuous preparation. One of the great challenges of studying future things, which, of course, uh, this text is inherently a part, is uh, we give our sole attention to the study of future things, but that is not our Lord's intent. The intent is to press the ethical obligation of readiness in light of the suddenness of his coming. Well, when he comes, there will be no time to prepare. Great reminder of lost opportunities to awaken all of us to continual preparation. Now, the first illustration, verses 37 to 39, again is to awaken us to continuous preparation in light of the suddenness of coming. It's, it's a biblical illustration an allusion of the coming flood in the days of Noah. Noah couldn't Google the Weather Channel. But when it began to rain, it was too late. Noah, of course, is a remarkable example of a man who hears the word of the Lord and begins to act upon the word. That's the point of the Olivet Discourse. Blessed is the man who does the word of the Lord. Noah is so blessed. But the context, of course, is most instructive for the church today. It's a corruption of the godly line that Moses will trace throughout uh, his, his book. Remarkable reminder, the corruption of the godly line. Genesis 6 and verse 2, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. By the way, it's a verbal pattern with Eve. She saw the tree, that it was beautiful, and she took. The sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took. Uh, the outcome, of course, is the corruption of the godly line, and so this corruption, God is soon uh, to act in judgment. You know, for all of our young people here, I understand, and maybe for all of us here, respecting your station in life, uh, we are called to marry Christians. To do otherwise is to bring untold heartache into your life. 
Here it brings corruption. Verses 12 and 13, Genesis chapter 6. And God looked on the earth. Behold, it was corrupt, and all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh comes before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them. Dwell upon the earth. People, of course, by and large, unconcerned about the corruption, were carrying on in their daily activities as if God, His Word, and His judgment were irrelevant. They had forgotten God. And that's a dangerous station for anyone to be in life. Of course, there's nothing wrong with eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, but there is in forgetting God and forgetting the fact that He will bring every act of man into judgment. And there is, of course, that reminder even to the Christian, the anxieties of the world. A man's got to live. A man's got to get promoted. A man's got to get a paycheck. Jesus says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. All these things will be added to you. It's a matter of priorities. and Sometimes we forget. And in forgetting, there is grave danger. In their oblivion, they did not realize that God would come. The text reads in verse 39 of Matthew 24, that they did not know. Here it is another great danger for men and women. I think it's somewhat incipient in the life of the church. We think if we know too much, uh, we'll be held to account. But ignorance is culpable. Because we live in a moral universe and God will bring all things into judgment whether you know or you do not know. I've tried that excuse, haven't you? When the red lights flash in your rearview mirror, well, I didn't know the speed limit was, was uh, thus and such. I mean, why me? There were other cars racing by me. I've heard that story. Highway Patrolman says, Bower Socks, have you ever hunted quail? You pick one out, and I picked you. Ignorance is culpable. Got the ticket. They did not know. Irrelevant that they did not know. Of course, they did know, stamped upon their souls. They were God's creatures. So the flood comes. It's interesting in the Greek text, the word flood is uh, literally the cataclysm. Came. Carried him away. Conversely, Noah and his family entered the ark. He did not know the day or the hour, but he was prepared. So the continual preparation is the answer to the unexpected and suddenness of the coming of God. And once it began to rain, it was too late for everyone else. Doors had been shut. I suspect uh, they watched Noah for a while probably made a bunch of jokes about it, building this big craft. Vain hope that animals would come. Maybe they heard a number of sermons on it, the exhortations to get ready. Uh, They ignored it, went about their merry way, eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. They were oblivious to the reality that God would come as a judge. 
and the violent waters that cleanse the earth of the corruption introduced by the sons of God. In the Lucan parallel, we have another very significant addition, the account of Lot. The angels came to his house and implored him to leave. Wasn't a lot of time. Uh, hey, can I close up my account? Uh, can I get my lawyer to straighten this out? I've got a problem with this and thus and such. Uh, it's no time when Lot left the city, fire instantly fell upon Sodom and destroyed everyone in it. I remind you a couple of Sundays ago, one of the shortest sermons that our Lord has ever preached. It really come out of this, uh, this text. Remember Lot's wife. They were implored not to look back upon the destruction of the city. She does. In an instant, she's taken in judgment. I don't have a clue what she was thinking. I forgot the sterling. I left my diary. My favorite locket. She broke the word of God, and the word of God broke her in an instant. It's a reminder of the importance of the word of God in continual preparation. We have a way sometimes in the danger of our lives of thinking we are so busy and so crushed with the weight of time. God will understand that I can put him second to last in my life. God comes. The second illustration, verses 40 to 41, of the necessity of continuous preparation is from everyday life. We go from Scripture, a biblical reminder of continual preparation, to one from everyday life. Two men are working in a field and two women are grinding some kind of grain or corn. Without any warning whatsoever, Christ comes. The outcome is stark and sobering because when it comes, every opportunity to recover is gone forever. It's a lost opportunity. Again, if you look at the text, uh, verse 40 and 41, there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill and one will be taken one will be left. It's as if they're engaged in work. Sometimes when we're so engaged with work, we're not aware of spiritual things, but it makes no matter. The Spirit of God comes in Christ in an instant. The unprepared are taken. The prepared are left. Is there a mulligan, the second coming? You know, sometimes on the football field, the team is unprepared for the field, and so the coach does this. 
Imagine Christ comes. Well, time out, Lord. <laughs> I've got, got a few things i got to correct. I've got to go square an account with a brother. I've got to go f- fix something in terms of confession. Uh, got to go study up on my theology. Make sure no time. In this case, one is taken, one is left. I, I take the former are taken away in judgment. Taking away is taking in judgment. Can't imagine stark fear. But Lord. And the latter, of course, remain to enter the fullness of the kingdom. One of the reasons I take it this way, a couple of parallels. Matthew chapter 13, verse 30. Somewhat of a parallel to our text. Planting of a field. There's a corruption of the field. Allow both to grow together until the harvest, and in that time of the harvest I will say to the reapers, first, gather up the tares. So I think that's something of a temporal priority. Uh, those who are unprepared are taken first, or those who are self-deceived are taken first. It makes no difference. They're taken first in judgment. And bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. Temporal priority, the unprepared are taken first in judgment. Same reality in the interpreted portion, verse 49. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels shall come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous. I'm using that to interpret the taking to be one of judgment. The same verb to take, by the way, is used of the taking of our Lord, the civil judgment, his condemnation upon the cross. Matthew 27, 27. The one certainty is the reality that God will come without any warning whatsoever and demand an accounting. The instant he comes, all is lost for the careless and the ignorant. The apostle says, moment in the twinkling of an eye. We do that in life, uh, do we not? Uh, uh, special guest is coming to the home and spend all our time <laughs> dusting, putting things away, and uh, maybe hiding some things. Oh, you don't do that. Trying to get ready for the special guest. Here there's no time. You're either ready or you're not ready. The coming will be so instantaneous, like the flash of a bolt of lightning. If you are unprepared, there is no time. And those who are unprepared are carried off by the angels into eternal peril. Again, the ethical reality is continual preparation. 
the man of God or the woman of God, realizing that unexpectedly God will come. We give most of our lives to preparation. We go to school, then we go to another school, then we go to a higher level of school or trade or whatever, always to be given exams. And then you enter the workforce, and then there's an audit you have to get ready for. And then you get a letter from the IRS that wants to audit you. Everything is about preparation. And so, too, it is the life of the moral event of being a child of God. The coming judgment. I simply cannot imagine in an instant angel grabbing you by the throat, hauling you away. And what would you say? Oh, you got the wrong guy. I <laughs> mean, check your address book, would you? Gone. And so if the ethical imperative is to be ready, then so how... How can we be ready? And again, the text, uh, Savior gives in the Olivet Discourse is the instructions to how to be ready on a continual basis. Uh, I've gone to enough schools that have uh, taken enough exams in my life that we all get ready. We, we, we cram and we cram, and the moment the exam is over with, we do the document dump and get ready for the next one. There's no document dumping here. It's a continual preparation for the coming of God and His Son. The point of the suddenness and unexpectedness is not to be caught unawares, and therefore, vigilance and preparation are essentials to the Christian life. And so the ethical imperative of the text is in verse 42. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Be on the alert. If you do not know when, then you are forever watchful and alert. It's the reverse of the casual, lackadaisical drifting of most. There's something here of a reminder of one of the great circles of life to me as a Christian, that of duty and grace. Duty presses us to grace. The first message of the grace of God is the provision of Christ as our high priest. If you have any other high priest from him, you will never be ready. The high priest of Israel will go into the Holy of Holies one day a year, I am sure in fear and trembling, to make intercession for the people of Israel. Did that every year after year, regardless of the duty roster. It might have been a different name, but... Title High Priest, our Lord enters one time for all time to ransom for eternity the sins of his people. Now that's a high priest to reckon with. And I will tell you that there is no other than Christ, the high priest of God. You've reckoned upon anyone else, the angels will get you at the end of the age. It's a great theology of the entirety of the book of Hebrews the infinite perfections of Jesus Christ who enters to the Holy of Holies to ransom his people 
in one great cataclysmic event. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And there is hope and no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. You miss there. All is lost. You can write for 10,000 years your excuses or the other gods that you chose or the other ways to the right God that you chose. The angels will carry you away to the finality of everlasting judgment. There is a wonderful illustration of the majesty of Christ in His high priestly prayer. John chapter 17. Twelfth verse. While I was with them, I was keeping in thy name which thou hast given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished. My friend, that's a Savior to reckon with. Because when you come to Christ, He keeps you in the name of God safe. And He guards you to protect you from anything that would derail you to put you in harm's way. Again, the reality of the text is so incredible it really breaks and breaches us with a great promise of God. Not one of them perished. It's really the parallel or corollary theology to John 6. I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of the Father's hand. The fact that we are guarded perpetually. Some of you may say, well, yeah, but he's getting ready to leave. But even in that, the Spirit of the living God will come to guard and to protect and keep and to put the seal of God on the people of God to protect them from the judgments of God. If you're not a Christian, that ought to give you some sense of the danger that you are in, and perhaps in the grace of God you will flee to the Savior. Who alone can protect you from the gathering to eternal destruction? Notice you might say, well, one did perish. I mean, Judas perished. I guess Christ didn't do a very good job there, did he? I mean, he got the eleven, but he failed in the one. No, Jesus even answers that. But the son of perdition, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. He was simply fulfilling the scripture. That Judas was reprobated from time immemorial in eternity past. That, my friend, is a savior to reckon with. You can destroy even the soul. The power of God. We reckon with lots of things in life. Sometimes we forget to reckon with the one that can destroy the soul. Even Christ our Savior. So this is a reminder, of course, a uh, great ethical imperative, the grace of God, the right high priest who guards his people, protects them and keeps them, and loses none that the Father entrusts to his care. Secondly, of course, grace is always preparing us. Apostle Paul tells the Philippian church, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who hath begun a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. 
We forget that sometimes as Christians. Well, I can take a sabbatical from the Christian faith, and I can go on a long vacation for all these spiritual duties. No, the work of God is always preparing His people, getting them ready for that is the hope of the gospel. Confident, Paul says, that he who has begun a work will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Where God starts, he finishes. And I'm not unmindful of a great portion of evangelicalism today that God can start it and then you can wiggle out of his grasp. I don't understand that theology. As if those whom the Lord justified can suffer eternal ruin. I'm sorry. That misses the point of justification and its natural moral corollary in sanctification. God starts, he finishes. If those whom Christ ransomed on the cross can eventually suffer eternal doom, then the gospel has been totally redefined, and I reject that theology. I love that text. God starts, he finishes. God begins, he'll perfect until the day of his coming. It means, of course, that when we uh, cling to the one true high priest, we are guarded, protected, and safe. And when we cling to the one high priest, we get his vicar upon the earth in the spirit of the living God who is continually at work within us to make us ready. Another one of my texts that's a favorite of the continual preparation, the reminder of the outcome of that preparation, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 24, faithful is he who calls you, he will bring it to pass. The long litany in that context of things that we're to do as Christians, and we ought to do them, and grace moves us to do them. And yet in the grace of God, faithful is he who calls you, he also will bring it to pass. That all along the way, God is bringing to pass our eternal sanctification decreed before the foundation of the world. That's grace, continually preparing us, making us ready. The suddenness of the coming of Christ. Grace in the great high priest, grace in the enablement, fulfillment of our duties and preparation. Evidence of grace here in the text. Jesus says, watch. It's a present imperative, so we could translate it literally, keep watching. The idea is to be on guard in a state of readiness. Turn to the Gospel of Mark, the 13th chapter, synoptic parallel has inherent within it uh, means of preparation. Mark chapter 13, the 33rd verse. Take heed. Keep on the alert. We do not know when the appointed time is. Again, verses 36 and 37. Lest he come suddenly, find you asleep. What I say to you all, I say be on the alert. 
The first verse stacks two present imperatives, looking in the sense of an awareness and watching, literally being sleepless. That's a pretty difficult charge. Of course, we don't press it to its uh, moral end. Uh, But there is a sense in which we are ready in continual preparation. There is good manuscript evidence here for adding the command to pray. Even if it's not part of the original text, I leave that for the great textual critics. Uh, Praying is a way to get ready. The great illustration of our Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing the cross is imminent. He prays. The disciples go to sleep, but he prays. There is a sense in which we ought to be sleepless. Again, it's not literally or medically or biologically possible, but spiritually, it's a sense of readiness. And I do love the evidence for prayer because it reminds us that we live in dangerous times. And in dangerous times, we succor the grace of God and call upon the grace of God to meet with us every day to make us ready. Peter gives us another way to stay ready. He says, be on the alert, same verb. Why is that? Because Satan is about you as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I like those animal programs on television. Lions are ambush predators. They stalk and they wait. And sometimes they hunt in this team. A couple of them will chase, uh, chase you into an ambush zone. That's all of life. You and I live in a kill zone, an ambush zone. And Satan is always looking, always ready for a moment and an instant to strike. A person who is simply whistling as if there's no moral event that stands over everything, not preparing is in a dangerous way. Another textual reminder of... uh, A way to get ready comes another place that we find uh, this verb to be alert. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 16. Thirteenth verse. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Oh, come on. 2016, I mean, no absolute truth. I mean, can't we just give a little give and take here? I mean, I mean, come on, the Lord will get over it. Uh, you know, we can self-define God, can't we? That's what every other Christian I know does. The Apostle Paul says you stand firm in the faith. You give no ground. You give no retreat. And that's a difficult calling, I admit to you, but it's the counsel of the great churches that come out of the Protestant Reformation. Stand firm in the faith. Something of the reality that you need to know the faith. Something a reminder that one of the great prayers of the Apostle Paul is that you might know God. Well, this casualness today is really something that needs to be rejected. We're to stand firm in the faith and not give ground. New American Standard reads, act like men, be strong. In other words, be courageous. 
You come to Christ, it takes courage to prosecute your witness. In and of itself, that's a summons to grace. All of us in a moment can lose courage. In a moment give the wrong answer, and all of us have. So we need to pursue and pray the grace of God would enliven us, quicken us. In other words, watchfulness engages all of the means of grace and the moral imperative to hold fast the faith delivered us. Apostle Paul praying for the Ephesian elders, I delivered to you the whole counsel of God. Delivered to us. Jude, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Another way to realize uh, what this means is perhaps to catch it in a very compromising circumstance of what it does not mean. I invite you to third chapter of the book of Revelation. Again, same verb, be watchful, is used. Revelation chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, uh, the word of the Lord, wake up and strengthen the things that remain which are about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Remember therefore what you have received and heard, and keep it and repent. If therefore you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come upon you. Again, he's writing to a church that's compromised its faith. Here's a great illustration of this from the life of John Calvin. Most of us who are committed to Reformed theology know something of that name and that history. Uh, it's very interesting, uh, if you ever have the occasion to read uh, his great work, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, the largest section of the Institutes have to do with the church. What? From Calvin? What about predestination? What about, what about the grace of God? All that's in there, of course. But the largest section is the life of the church. And we give the church today a passing thought. Calvin did not. It dominates his great work. The life of the church. The life of the Christian. The reminder that the Christian life is not your own private affair. You don't get to write your own rules. The Scripture calls us to the difficulty of the Christian experience and living in an errant body with errant Christians, reminded continually that we are errant and prone to wander and desperate upon every day for the living grace of God to keep us, lest we're caught unaware. The church is in a compromised condition. They're enjoined to wake up. It's the verb, Matthew 24. It's as if someone's in a slumber and you want to grab them by the collar and shake them in light of their danger. I think one of the most forgotten ministries in the life of the church today is warning people that they're in a broad way. that to strengthen the things that remain which are about to die. 
They have incomplete works, a failure to uphold the confessions and an unrepentant status, and the warning is stark. If you will not wake up, again, same verb as Matthew 24, Jesus will come like a thief. This metaphor, as you know, is used of the second coming. It's more likely here a conditional coming in judgment in a present form to affect spiritual disaster. Now that, my friend, is a sterling reminder to be careful about playing fast and loose in the life of the church and with Jesus Christ, who is the head of the body. Another great reminder comes to us, John, Revelation 16, verse 15. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blesses the one who stays awake and keeps his garments, lest he walk about naked and men see his shame. Blessed. Of course, all of this is another reminder, I think, of the great means of grace meant to purify us, the godly living and godly witness. So we have the grace of God, this great duty to be ready for the unexpected coming of the angelic forces that come to sift men into two great eternal camps, the lost and the saved. The grace of the great high priest who is Jesus Christ. The grace of the dispatch of the Spirit who guards and keeps his people and seals them from eternal judgment and peril. The grace of the text reminding us of the means of grace. Again, also the grace of the presence of Christ. Matthew 20, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. In all of the battles you fight, you do not fight them alone. In all of your agony and the perils and the struggles, you are not alone. The Savior is with you. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. Never, that's a long time. Only Christ can fulfill that, and he does for his people. Never forgets us. Always with us, always about us. Always praying for his church. Never forsakes his people. And of course, the presence of God this morning in the Lord's table. It's peculiar that uh, we have a summons to continual preparation, a reminder this morning of the grace of God the spiritual presence of Christ who comes to his people who are beaten up, who are struggling, who are wounded, who are bandaged. I love the metaphor of Charles Spurgeon. Sails rent and torn. Pumps running 24 hours a day lest the ship be swamped. But God will see us through to the end in the spiritual presence of Christ with his people is one great evidence of that one great certain fact that he loses none entrusted to his care.